Now admit it, you played with nativity sets like that when you were a kid, right? I mean, we used to like steal baby Jesus and leave ransom notes, you know. Make me chocolate chip cookies if you ever want to see your son again. Yeah, it was, uh, we all played with them like that. And you know what's really interesting about this Mr. Bean video is that it's more realistic than you think. And, and partly because most of our manger scenes have, have left out a very key character. How many of you have a red dragon in your nativity scene? Anybody? Really? I mean, like never? Not just not this year, red dragon? It's, it's in the Bible. It's part of the nativity story. Really? You, you, you didn't know that story? See, there are three nativity scenes in the Bible. There's the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, which are the ones we know really well. Um, if you were to combine them together, you get the, the whole picture of the nativity scene, right? We have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. They've gone to Bethlehem where Jesus was born and there was no room in the inn. And, and we had shepherds and we have angels. And then a, probably a couple of years later, we have the wise men, the kings come. And, and, and that creates the story we're all used to. But there's a third nativity scene in the Bible that doesn't get talked about very much. And, and it takes place in, in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. And we're not going to read that passage statement. I'm going to tell you the story in case you haven't heard it. And chapter 12 is right in the middle of the book of Revelation. And, and just to refresh your memories, because Revelation is a book that tends to scare people uh, because they've, they've created this picture of it, that this, this thing that's a mystery, we can't understand it. And the, the book of Revelation is actually a really, really simple story. And the story goes like this. The, the people of God were living in intense persecution. And, and John, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, wrote a letter, a very particular kind of genre of, of literature in this letter to seven churches that were struggling and suffering in incredible persecution. And his message was, no matter what happens, no matter how much you suffer, no matter how much persecution you go through, guess what? Jesus wins. That's the book of Revelation. And we get caught up in stuff, but in the middle of the book of Revelation, in this story that Jesus wins, and right in the middle of the book, basically, in chapter 12, which follows, logically, chapter 11, chapter 11 has this, the, the words of what we remember from the Hallelujah Chorus. There's this place towards the end where it talks about the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it says this, this choir of 24 angels started singing, and their singing spread and resounded throughout the heavens. This, this amazing picture of rejoice and praise and giving God honor, proclaiming Jesus' name, resolve and move into chapter 12. There's this, there's this scene change, and it says this sign appeared in heaven. And it was this picture, it says, of a woman who had 12 stars coming from her head. And, and, and we know through looking at the of the, the elders, the, the, the people who were singing and resounding, it drowned it out with the, the pain of childbirth. And then it said another character, another sign came on the scene, and that was of a red dragon. And this red dragon, we know, symbolizes Satan. And it basically, he is waiting, it says in this picture, he's waiting. And the picture given of who this child is, this will be a king that rules with an iron scepter. And we know it's painting a picture of Jesus Christ. And so we have this red dragon in the middle of this scene of, of this woman who, who represents Israel, about to give birth to this, this person who is Jesus. And Satan is trying to stop it from happening. And it says that basically a great war broke out across the cosmos. As Michael, the archangel, and his army of angels basically defeated Satan and cast him. And the picture is that, that Satan, this red dragon, landed on earth, and the baby was born in spite of what he tried to do. And so basically he left there intent on deceiving and destroying everyone who tried to follow the child. That's the Christmas story. Wow, that, that is not nice and cuddly and warm. That's not little cherub angels singing to the angels, do not be afraid. 
That's not a warm and cozy manger with angels singing Christmas carols and, and, and shepherds rejoicing and telling everyone. It's not, it's not comfortable. It doesn't seem something that we would give presents for. Because the reality is, is, is the Apostle John basically took our manger scene and we look at that today and we've turned it into something warm and cozy and it's, it's an amazing story. But, but the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, is basically tearing, tearing back, the, the, uh, helping us go into another dimension, into this spiritual realm of what was going on. And so the birth of Jesus in the cosmos, in the history of all these things going on, was not just about this baby being born. It, it was about what broke out at the idea of Christmas. And it, and it brought about great evil on the earth and great opposition across the cosmos. And in the middle of that, Jesus was born. Now this message to John's audience in Revelation, once again, what is it? He, he, he's saying to them, remember, they all know who Jesus was. These are people who had chosen to follow him, and their life was that of persecution in, under the Roman Empire. They could lose their life at any moment just by proclaiming who Jesus is. And, and John wrote that from, from basically captivity on an island, a life of exile. Life from a worldly perspective was not a pretty thing for them. But in the middle of it, I think John is saying, remember what Jesus has done. Remember that Jesus wins. All right, so the Apostle John also wrote another book, the the Gospel of John. And the very beginning of the Gospel of John is what we're going to look at today, which isn't technically a Christmas story, but it talks about Jesus. It talks about Jesus coming to earth, which is the Christmas story. And the prologue to the book of John is one of the most amazing pieces of literature ever written. It's one of the most amazing uh, statements of theologically of who God is and who people are and what is the hope that we have in him, all wrapped up in these 18 verses that start it. And I think for us to really move into the Christmas season, and, and uh, it was alluded to by Barry a bit ago, we're kind of putting a hold on the Mark series for a while, and during this month we'll look at Christmas, and the, the series title will be Getting Through the Wrappings. And today we're looking at the great so what's of Christmas, of John's prologue. So, so what does it mean? And I think this, in order to really grasp Christmas and, and live life well at this time of year, we need God's panoramic vision of what it's all about. And that includes the picture of the nativity scene. And it includes the picture of what went on in the, what went on in the cosmos behind the scenes. What, what was God doing? What miraculous thing was changing in history? And, and, and how was Satan trying to stop it? That's, that all has to be brought into our understanding of Christmas. And so we start in the book of the, the beginning of the book of John, and we say, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 
The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. As I said at the beginning, I believe this passage gives us God's panoramic perspective of what Christmas and all of life is about. And we really have to ask ourselves questions. If we're looking at the Christmas story, if we're looking at this whole panorama, we're looking at what went on in the cosmos and what went on on earth, and, and all the amazing things that collided together to be the Christmas story, we, we can easily say, so, so what? What does it really matter? What, what really happened in that time? We, we celebrated. Our, our nation sets aside time every year. Places around the world celebrate Christmas, but, but really why? What, what was it actually about? What, is it, what does it tell us? And so I think there, there are three so what's we're going to look at. And the first is, so what in this passage do we learn about God? In some ways, this passage gives us a deep theology about really everything we need to know is wrapped up in here. Uh, John lays out some themes in this prologue that he's going to expound on throughout the rest of the book. So what do we learn about God? And, and in the reality, we learn way more than we're going to cover this morning in this passage. But first, we learn that this idea that the word, Jesus, became flesh. It tells us something. It tells us that God is intent on communicating about himself and not just about concepts. If we were to go into a deep word study and cultural study about this idea of what does the word mean here? It says, in the beginning was the word. We would come to understand, you've probably heard it before, that the word is referring to Jesus. And, and, and you have to go through some things. John goes to Deep detail. He's an amazing writer in how he dealt with words and how he, in some ways, attempted to redefine how we think about words. And so when he talks about the word, in the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see this word coming out. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And, and we even just think in our own life and our own experience about words. We, we speak words. It's how we communicate to each other. Uh, our words should mean something. If we made a promise to someone and, and then we don't follow through with it, they will say, but, but, but you said, because somehow our words belong to us. They're, they're part of who we are. Uh, we we uh, give breath to them to produce sounds. We, we speak words. And, and, and there are things there that says the words are part of who we are. And there was an idea in, in contemporary Jewish thought at that time that words had power. Words represented who we were. And so that was an understanding thing. And so they would understand the Old Testament. God, in the beginning, how did he create? He spoke it into being. And so some idea, his words, his speaking was part of who he was. But, but John goes to great lengths to talk about, and that spoken word is actually a person. In fact, it's Jesus. And he's the speaker and he's the doer. He's the creator. And John uses some grammatical things here to talk about the, the eternal understanding of who that is. The word is Jesus. Jesus has always been. The word wasn't just a person that was created by God and then did things, the first of all creation. No, he was never created. And John uses words that we would say are, are verbs of to be. 
and it goes on and on. He, he was. It's a to be word. He, we would translate that really. We could, we could use the biblical idea of I am. In the beginning, Jesus have always been. I always will be. Later in John, he uses this idea again when, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, and, and he uses a different word there. Before Abraham came into being, I am. So, so he does this over and over again to create this idea that Jesus, the word, has always talked about God. And this is so different than how we saw Mark talk about things, right? Mark is more and more of a, a narrative passage. Jesus shows up, and through his life, he's showing who he is. John starts right out saying, this is who Jesus is. You've learned who Jesus. You worship Jesus. You follow Jesus. You know what? Jesus is and always has been God. And John may have even further messed up everybody's way of thinking when he said, the word, who is God, who has always been, became flesh, became a person, and lived among us. I love the way Eugene Peterson in, in the message, paraphrase of the Bible, says, the word became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. That'll shake you up. The God of all creation, the one who created everything and sustains everything, and John here, the one who made everything, nothing exists that wasn't made by him, is the all-powerful one. He moved into the neighborhood. And what does that tell us about God? Is that God is intent on communicating who he is about himself, not just to give us concepts of truth to ponder. And we're people that love concepts. We love philosophy. We, we love to get nuggets of things that can somehow uh, give us more knowledge about something. And Jesus wants to be known, not just known about. But we love concepts. Who we are as a people. In fact, I did a quick search the other day on Amazon. Just a search of self-help. Self-help books. Over 800,000 titles showed up. I went through about half of them. A few. And there were great titles, things like How to Change Your Life in 15 Minutes. And that was a free Kindle book. So, so in 15 minutes, you could change your life for free. Amazing. Uh, there was another one, Get Out of Your Own Way. That, yeah. Uh, uh, Healing Your Emotional Self. Uh, the Self-Esteem Workbook. The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Now, the, the weird thing is I found that one like as a gift book in our Check out, so I don't know. Maybe Laura thinks I should learn something. Um, achieve anything in one year. I mean, this is the sense. And, and I am a firm believer that, that all truth is God's truth. If someone writes something that's truthful in there, there are things we can learn about it. We go, yep, that's awesome. And there are probably some good things in some of those books. But, but we tend to gravitate towards concepts. And Jesus didn't move into the neighborhood. God didn't put on flesh to teach us a concept. He wanted to show us himself. And so we learn that about God in this passage. We also learn about God that, that truth and knowledge of God is not hidden, but it's accessible. When, when God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, he's saying, I want to be known. And it's not something hidden. It's not some magical mystery thing that you have to somehow discover. I'm right here in your midst. In the other nativity scenes, we have the story of, you call him Emmanuel, God with us. That is a radical idea. It is not hidden, but is accessible. We also learn through this passage that Jesus was no mere mortal. It's gone over and over, and John's saying, Jesus is God. 
He's the second person of the Trinity, to use our terminology. He is God. He's not just a a mere mortal. He's not one Savior among many, but he's God himself. And what we learn when we really grasp that is that's something that the world still struggles to grasp. That, that whole idea messed up the people in that era and it messed up ours. Because we don't like to see that there's this, there's this one God and he became flesh and dwelt among us and there are no others. That's what John is expressing to us. He's not just, he's no mere mortal. He wasn't just a, a carpenter who in that time happened to possess a great deal of wisdom. And people are, wow, have you ever heard the carpenter? He's amazing. You should buy his books. No, he, he's not just a wise person. He's He's God. And we learn through this that he isn't just ethically divine. So we use some theological terms. He's not ethically divine. He's not seen as divine because he did the right things and good things. He is ontologically divine. He, his absolute being is divine. He is God. And that's expressed in this passage. So, so we learn about God, that Jesus is God, has always been God, always will be God. So we, so we learn those, those three things about God in this passage. But then we say, so what do we learn about people? world is uh, is a statement of not not of neutrality this isn't a statement about the uh, the earth and and ecology and the environment this is a statement about humanity set against god it's a term that john uses a lot in the book of john the idea of the world and sometimes it's used of the world god so loved the people who are arrayed against him that he sent his son. That, that, that's, a, that's a powerful statement. And here we talk about the world. Uh, through him all things were made, right? Uh, uh, John came testifying. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. You, you know, up earlier it talks about in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Darkness in this concept is also a term of the human condition. And it's interesting, in, in verse 5, when it says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That word understood is interesting. It's used uh, in several ways throughout the New Testament. One, in, in the choice that the NIV uses here, and the King James Version does this too, it talks about understanding. Uh, the, the light came in the darkness, but the darkness didn't grasp, they didn't understand it. The word is literally grasp. And most of the times in the New Testament, that idea of grasping is not intellectual, but physical. You're grasping with your hand, you, you, and you grasp something to control it. And so uh, a really valid interpretation of that, that um, verse would be, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And I think a little bit of both is going on. It's grasping it and understanding, but it's also the darkness cannot control it, which paints such a great picture with that story in Revelation. The darkness, which wants to snatch that baby to stop this amazing thing from happening, it couldn't. But at the same time, that red dragon is trying to deceive people, to try to, to influence people against the light. So, so the world is a theological term for humanity sent against God. Darkness describes human, humanity in a theological way, too, and, and that is that we reject the truth. It says, he came to his own. The light came, but the darkness didn't, didn't want it. The darkness didn't receive it. The world, although it was made by him, didn't want anything to do with that and, and rejected it. We reject the truth. Truth is another word throughout John, and he uses it here in a couple of ways, but throughout the book of John, that's, the, that's his primary word. He talks about Jesus is the truth. Once again, truth is not just a concept. Truth is a person. 
to be known. But we reject truth and we replace it with fashionable truths. That's our our human condition. That's why we have all the self-help books. We're we're trying to find a way, something that's going to make us work better. But we also learn from this passage about peoples that we are in a state from which there is no human devised freedom. Jesus said, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, there are some that did. And how do you receive him? It's those who believed in his name. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And he says, children not born of natural ascent or human decision or husband's will, but born of God. In other words, the only way to be a child of God is through God. Not through any way we can come up with. Any uh, human devised scheme. Any, any method we can figure out. Then it says, no, you become children of God only through the grace and truth of God. There's no human devised way of freedom. And in other words, we're, we're, we're people of sin. Sin is not a series of bad choices. It's a state of being from which bad choices come. Just as just Jesus has always been God, people in darkness have always been in darkness. We've always been in sin. We, we aren't sinners because we make bad choices. We make choices because we're sinners. That's, that's the state of being that we're in. And this passage points that out loud and clear. And so we learn things about God. We learn things about people and about humanity. But then we ask ourselves, so, so what are the possibilities? Because John gives huge possibilities in this passage. And we already alluded to it a little bit about we can be... In other words, the possibility is there is only one hope, and that is Jesus Christ. God in Christ who comes in truth and grace. Once again, if we refer to the whole idea of self-help books, and once again, there are probably really good things in them. I've read some. There's great hints of things. There are little nuggets of truth in them. As humans, we, we strive to repair something that we think is basically okay, as if all we need in life is a little tinkering. And so if we, and therefore I can change my life in 15 minutes. Because it doesn't take much, just a little tinkering around the edges is all I need. But, but this passage doesn't say that. It says we, we tend towards darkness. That's our, our human condition. It's our natural tendency. Humanity strives to repair something that's basically okay, as if we just need a little tinkering around the edges. But God, the great hope is that God through Christ offers absolute transformation, complete transformation into what? Into children of God. And once again, that, that phrase to me is mind-boggling. Children of God. That doesn't mean we become divine like Jesus. Even though what Paul talks about, the the hope of our life is that we are transformed more and more into his likeness. We're transformed more and more into his full humanity. Jesus was fully human and fully God, and he's transforming us into his full humanity. This this idea for which we were created and from which we fell. He wants to transform us into children of God. God. And this passage basically tells us, and the rest of the book of John tells us, that the way we are transformed is we respond to the light. And it says Jesus is the light. The light that gives life is coming into the world. And, and light is an interesting concept, theologically. And we think, physically, what does light do? Well, you know, it, let's say we were to come back later tonight, and, and I mean, we have things that cover the, the uh, windows here, so there's really not much natural light coming through. If we turned off all the lights, came here at night, it would be absolutely dark in here. 
And when it's absolutely dark, do you turn off the dark switch? No, you turn on the light. If you're out in the middle of nature and it's really dark and you have a flashlight or a headlamp, it's amazing because it can illuminate and help show your way. It's one of the things light does. Light, scripturally speaking, is a great expression of grace. I had a a Hebrew professor in seminary who prior to his professor years uh, was a chaplain in the Navy and he served in Vietnam on the lines, and he talked about a story when the uh, first time he was in the jungles of Vietnam, he said it was so dark, you literally could not see the hand in front of your face. And he said, at that moment, I realized that the first book of the Bible, in the beginning of Genesis, it said, God said, let there be light. That was the first statement of grace. Because light does something. I mean, think about when you have a sleepless night, right? You've gone through these horrible times, and horrible things happen in the dark in your brain, in your mind, in your emotions, in your self-being, and you can't wait for morning because things look better in the morning. And, and so light has a way of, of illuminating and giving direction. Light is warming. But it says here that we refuse the light. Well, why is that? Because light also reveals things we would rather not see. And I have a horrible story to tell you about that. I was a teenager. I had a pet German shepherd named Gretchen. It was this beautiful dog. She slept in my room at night on the bed. And as, you know, a kid, you know, you usually have to get up and go to the bathroom during the middle of the night. So I remember one day I got up, went to the bathroom. I lived in it. It was a basement bedroom and it was dark. And, you know, came back in bed, got went back to sleep. And in the morning when I woke up and there was enough light coming through the, the bedroom window, I started to step out of the bed and realized that during the night the dog had gotten really sick in all kinds of ways all over my bedroom floor. How I got from there to the bathroom, I will never know. But when the lights were on, I realized all the junk that I could have stepped in. And it was ugly. And when the light comes to illuminate, it shows us things we would rather not see. And so we refuse it. I don't want the light. I reject the light. I I don't want to understand the light. I want to control the light. Why? Because it shows me things I don't want to see, I don't want pointed out. And that is true if you've never known Jesus in your life or if you followed him your entire lifetime. There are things we really don't want to see because light illuminates, light reveals. And it says people didn't want the light. God, through Christ, offers absolute transformation into children, not just concepts about him. He's not hidden. He is accessible. He's not just one among many. He is God. He wants us to know that. He wants us to know that, that by nature we are predisposed to be set against God and to reject the light. And he wants us to hold on the possibility that we are being transformed into children of God. Those three things comprise the core of our faith and the filter through which we view the world around us. In fact, if we were just to hold on to those three things, if we were to approach every day in life remembering, as I'm walking through my life, God wants to be known. I have a tendency to reject the light. But God wants to transform me into his child. Can you imagine going through life always reminding yourself of those things? God wants to be known. What an amazing thing. And, and I have a tendency to push that away, but God is working to transform me through Jesus Christ. That, what a great hope there is in life. That is the only hope. How do, how do we grab onto that? How do we live that every day? That idea, once again, comprises the core of our faith and the filter through which we view the world around us. 
And it reminds me of maybe my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christ as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I'm going to read that again because once again, if you, if you just retain that idea, which is basically what the prologue of John is about. I believe in Christ as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's what happened and got introduced at Christmas. In spite of the great opposition in the cosmos, in spite of the opposition that goes on every day as Satan strives to deceive people, Jesus wins. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. And when we look at a nativity scene this time of year, and we see the little baby in the manger, and we see Mary and Joseph there telling the cows to shh, it's not a tidy little scene. It really represents chaos. And in the middle of chaos came the Prince of Peace. In the middle of chaos throughout the cosmos, in the, the middle of evil that was unleashed to try to stop it, Jesus wins. And so when we look at that manger, see the beauty of it, see the amazing gift, but remember that there was a red dragon trying to stop it. And that red dragon has been defeated. And Jesus reigns and rules, and he gives hope and he gives transformation for us to welcome the light and be transformed into children of God. That's the Christmas story. That's God's panoramic view of what Christmas and all of life is about. Will you join me in celebrating Christmas that way this year? It's radical. You say, what are you doing when you celebrate Christmas? I'm, I'm celebrating the defeat of the red dragon. People will look at you with the weirdest look you've ever seen. Really? I thought it was about baby Jesus in the manger. But that red dragon has been defeated and is still being defeated every day fully and more fully. And that little baby Jesus is not in the manger. He is on the loose in our lives and in the world around us. 